Welcome to Attention to Detail, the classical music listening guide, where we give you the tools to understand, appreciate, and enjoy listening to classical music. Hi everyone, uh, we're back in, in uh, the year 2020 with, uh, with a new podcast episode. Very excited to be, be coming back to you here, and I'm joined as always with, with Hannah Reffett. Hannah, how's it going? Great, happy new year. Happy new year. How are, uh, how are things going? Great, great. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, <laughs> Beethoven. Yeah. It's uh, Beethoven's 250th birth anniversary year. He was born in 1770. Yeah. Uh, so all year, all over the world, people are, people are going to be celebrating um, Beethoven's birth. Here at the ISO, all year long, um, we are going to be celebrating Beethoven. We're going to be playing all nine of his symphonies, all of his piano concerti, his triple concerto. Yeah. His, Violin uh, concerto, so Mrs. Solemnus, so much of his works. I'm he's my favorite uh, composer. I'm really excited to be getting getting into it. So yeah, yeah. oh sweet. I I didn't even realize we were doing. This is how up to date I am with with. Uh, Did I just reveal some things to you? Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize we're doing all the concerto because that's he wrote five piano concertos, a uh, violin concerto, and triple. So end, we're doing all of those. End of May. Ah, yeah. Well, that's coming up. I should probably yeah. have known that. Maniacs, but. FEMA, Bronfman. I think I remember yes. that. See, yeah. I, I operate here... Uh, Are you week to week? A little bit with yeah. my covering duties here. I'm thinking here. about 2022 now. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the other thing. Like, yeah. my schedule and some of the programs I'm making are, like, 2021, 2022. I think it's, like, career-oriented. I, I, work, I, I work similarly, too, though, because yeah. now we're in January. I'm thinking about, like, okay, who's coming in this January, week? yeah. <laughs> yeah, who am I taking care of? But then also, in the back of your head, you're also thinking about programming for two years out. Right. And that's, I should probably be significantly more on top of it than I am, but alas, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, what can you do? So, as you mentioned, we're going to talk about Beethoven today. And we've said on the podcast before, I don't really, the point of this podcast is not to provide like program notes Mm -hmm. or a lot of historical background, or I think that's stuff that exists other places is really easy for people to access. Um, We try to talk about how to listen, um, hopefully kind of skills and slightly larger things than than just like a specific piece. But as it's the year of Beethoven and as Beethoven is such a massive composer, Mm -hmm. I thought let's talk a little bit about Beethoven and kind of what makes Beethoven so great. Why, like, why should we care about this person 250 years after he was born. Mm. We don't care about that many people 250 years after they were born, realistically. And so he must have done something well, and so I want to kind of think about what that that could be. Very cool. So I actually want to start for our listeners by playing two excerpts of music, and I just want you to listen. Hannah, you can do this too. Listen to these two excerpts of music and... Just just think about them a little bit. So the first one um, I'm going to play for you. I'm going to play a little bit of the beginning and skip ahead a little bit and hear a little bit of later in the movement, and then and then we'll listen to the to the other audio clip.
All right, so that's the first one. Now let's listen to one more clip. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you just any reactions. All right, so you heard those two clips. Mm-hmm. Um, any initial impressions about those two clips? Any differences or, yeah? Part of, oh, between the two of them? Between the two, or, or about either one. Oh, well, the first, the second half of the first clip yeah. that you played me sounded like Strauss's Blue Danube. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Excellent. Um, definitely the second clip was a lot more um, I guess I would say exclamatory. Yeah. It's like that opening line. We've heard it before. On Can the I, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you remember what piece this is? Is it a Royka? Yes. Yeah! Excellent. I want to do drop the needle in like when I'm ready in five years. Yeah. yeah. That was, well, you nailed that one. There you go. Pat myself on the back. So you're and you're right too. We've listened to it on this podcast mm. I think multiple times. Multiple times. So yeah, as you mentioned, that was um, the second one was the Eroica Symphony. Yeah. The first one, I'm glad that you. The first one was a, symp- a symphony by Mozart, his 39th symphony. Okay. Written not that many years before the Eroica. Sure. And but I'm glad you identified that it sounded like a dance because that Mozart symphony it starts with this kind of processional sounding mm-hmm. music. It sounds like royalty is entering a room. It's kind of got a steady walking tempo and then it goes into what effectively is like a dance yeah. it's in it's in triple meter and it feels a little bit like a waltz the eroica is very different and mm-hmm. i chose these pieces they're both in e flat major which we don't need to know what that is but that's it's kind of important that they're in the same key there might be some similarities mm-hmm. beethoven would have known this piece by mozart and so he maybe would have thought to model it off sure. of Mozart's but clearly not. Yeah. Because he studied a lot of like Mozart's. Didn't I I just got a book by um I'm going to butcher his name. Jan Jan Swafford. Yes. I'm reading the book right now. Are you really? Yeah. I just I'm like 10 pages in. It's a fantastic book. It's a book. thousand page book. So yeah. I was like this is going to take me a while. But I'm like 500 in. Are you really? Yeah, it's a I'm good book. I have to catch up. Catch up. But I was just reading that he would like copy Mozart's yeah. music and yes. just like yeah, he knew Mozart well. He studied with Haydn. Um, we'll talk about that okay, in, a, in a little yes. bit. But, but um, the Eroica is very different. As you mm-hmm. mentioned, it starts with these two super loud chords. And then the Eroica is also in this triple meter okay. kind of dance-like tempo. Yeah. But it's definitely not a dance. It's tumultuous. It's exciting. It's a little intense. And we don't really know... What what it is uh, necessary? It's just it's it's music, and so I wanted to start with this because I think it illustrates the massive shift that happened with Beethoven, and really what I think makes Beethoven such an important, maybe the single most important composer, mm. and that is that Beethoven really was the first composer, the first major composer to write music for music's sake Mm. or 
the the more broad term is art for art's sake. Yep. You know, um, before Beethoven, and this is this is kind of a generalization and it's a sweeping statement, but I think it it holds for the most part. Before Beethoven, this is not to say that Mozart, Haydn, any composers before him were any lesser artists, mm. but a lot of the music that they wrote was purposeful. So, in the case, the reason why I chose this Mozart, it's a symphony. It's mm meant to be performed on its own. So it's not necessarily that it was specifically written for a purpose, but the beginning music is processional music. We know that. We identify that. It's music that would have been written for a king or royalty entering a room or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then as you identified, there's kind of dance music. Yeah. Right? That also has a purpose. You, You dance to that. Yeah. The Eroica... It starts with these two loud chords. Why does it start with those two loud chords? Well, because Beethoven wanted to do that. Yeah. It's not so much there's a purpose behind this. This is, I wanted to write this, and I wrote this. Yeah. And I, I think maybe for listeners, I think it's important to note that, like, um, concerts then are a lot different than what they are today. And, exactly. And Beethoven sort of set that in motion, correct? Yes. So I think what... The concert hall, and I think this is the other real major element of why Beethoven is so important, is the entire concept of now of, of like a concert hall mm. or an art museum. I don't want to attribute this all to Beethoven, but the idea, and I think a lot of it is attributable to Beethoven, the idea that you would have a space to go and listen to music for its own sake mm. is largely uh, a function of Beethoven because yeah. because before this again like processional music you would play in a setting where there was a procession mm. dance music you would play in a setting where there's dance and most concerts if they were in fact real concerts they were for for aristocracy yeah. or something they were meant somewhat as entertainment mm. um, other times music would be being played in the background of a dance or mm. in salons for late night entertainment. Sure. There wasn't this idea that let's go sit in silence and listen to this music because it was written for music's sake. Yeah. And that's the music by itself is valuable to listen to. Mm. And I think a lot of that is attributable to Beethoven. And so we're going to talk a little bit about just Beethoven, who he was, his music, all this stuff. But I think that's the most important thing is that that's such a massive shift in the world of all art with a capital A. Mm-hmm. The idea that of art for art's sake as opposed to art for a purpose. Um, and I think a lot of that is attributable to, to Beethoven. So let's, let's go and let's talk a little bit about um, who Beethoven was just to get a little bit of an idea of of how he how he changed music so much. So he was, as you mentioned, born in 1770, and he was born in this kind of uh, backwater town in Germany called Bonn. Um, but Bonn was actually a very kind of enlightened area. It was on the French and German border, and so it was in between these two dueling forces of France, which very quickly became a hub of democratic ideas, mm-hmm. um, the French Revolution happened when Beethoven was 21, and or maybe 20, um, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, which was one of the most conservative um, empires in, in Western Europe, and they really tried to maintain 
the previous kind of monarchical order. Mm. Um, part of during Beethoven's time uh, was the reign of this more enlightened kind of monarch, but re- regardless, it was a very monarchical society to his right, and uh, it's funny that this, this the Austro-Hungarian Empire was to the right of Beethoven on a map and also to the right politically, and mm. France was to the left on a map and to the left politically, and so he was in an interesting... Smack dab in the middle. Yeah. yeah. But music, when Beethoven, when Beethoven was born, it was in an interesting place because for many centuries until the time of Johann Sebastian Bach, really, mm. in the late 1600s, early 1700s, Music was almost notated music or classical music was almost exclusively written for the church or for religious services. And so in that sense it had a very, very distinct purpose, basically, to enhance religious services. Sure. Um then Bach came along and he was actually a a church organist and kind of a very religious guy himself, but ironically he's the one who elevated secular music to the same level as church music Mm. and that was the other massive massive shift in music history was Bach who really to to make secular music that important is what led to all of these other Mm. developments so so we had secular music when Beethoven was growing up but it was secular music that was mostly purposeful and so he was born into the classical period of Mozart and Haydn and the, the kind of intellectual period that he was born into, we, we call the Enlightenment. And there was a lot of rationality that was going on, a lot of science, this new emphasis on form, rationality. You know, da Vinci had lived before Beethoven, Descartes. There was this sense of, and, and rulers of the time tried to be kind of rational monarchs, whatever, and and even the French Revolution, it was kind of this idea of let's think about rationally how we can put together the best society. And music took that form. Mozart and Haydn were very much rational composers who Mm -hmm. tried to compose things that were kind of perfect, crystalline forms, and they boiled, in a way, they boiled down a lot of composition to something of a science. There's still an enormous amount of genius and creativity there. But they wrote things in a quasi, almost scientific, formulaic way. That's why a lot of Mozart, Haydn, people think sound somewhat similar. They're actually filled with surprise and um, things that we don't expect, but the surprise itself is somewhat scientific mm-hmm. in Mozart and Haydn. There's really a, a formula to writing good music. And so that's the environment Beethoven was born into. And from a very early age, he was kind of... He viewed himself as something of a revolutionary. He was very prodigious on the piano, and he was an excellent improviser. That's how composers started, primarily. And But he saw himself a little bit as a revolutionary. And so when he wrote his first few works, and he moved to Vienna at a, at, in 1792, I believe... Let me check if he moved in 1792. Yeah, he was 20. Yeah. And he um, he moved there with the intention of really establishing himself as a major composer. Mm. He studied with Haydn, as you, as you mentioned, and Haydn taught him a lot of this kind of formulaic way of, of writing. He learned counterpoint, a lot of the music theory that we learn today, he learned from Haydn. Mm. 
And that was a big emphasis of these composers. Could you quickly expand yeah. what counterpoint means? Yes, counterpoint. We don't need to know like the details of what sure. counterpoint, but this was the kind of theoretical foundations that every composer of the classical era had to have. And what counterpoint is actually is just the interweaving of two lines. Okay. So very simple counterpoint is row, row, row your boat. Mm-hmm. If we sing that in a round, mm. the interaction of those two lines is counterpoint. So writing lines gotcha. that can interact with each other. Mm. But there's much more advanced counterpoint. If you write a fugue with four parts where they all enter and they all have to sound harmonious, that's mm. a very tricky, almost mathematical problem of how do I write something a subject for a fugue that sure. works when it comes in and comes in again and comes in again. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that composers had to learn and what he learned from Haydn. Mm. What I learned in my beginning music theory class, we still learn this today. Mm. Um, but Beethoven really wanted to depart from some of these rules and write his own music. And so even in his very early compositions... He wrote music that was a little different from Haydn and Mozart. He, his first publication was a set of piano trios, which was a genre that Mozart and Haydn left largely untouched. Mm. They had primarily written string quartets and, uh, and symphonies, and Beethoven decided, you know what, I'm going to start in areas that they haven't really tread yet. <laughs> and as I mentioned, they were writing a lot of music that was for a purpose. Sure. Entertainment, function. I want to play for you a short clip of of a Haydn piece, just a Haydn divertimento, and I think just from kind of the ambiance that you hear from this, you can tell this was really written to kind of entertain something in the background of a very aristocratic party. Mm-hmm. So let me play for you this this Haydn clip. So before we get back to the episode talking about, about Haydn and Beethoven, I just want to take a quick second to to mention our, our sponsor for this episode, Encoda, N-K-O-D-A, an online subscription service that has a bunch of critical edition of scores digitized that you can access on your, your iPad, iPhone, computer. It would be a great kind of post-holiday New Year's gift if people want to get one for someone that they know. It's a it's a very inexpensive subscription service that I use all the time um, to look at scores, and I think it's great for anyone, certainly musicians, but also non-musicians who read a little bit of music and just want to look into some of the pieces that we're talking about here on the podcast. So now let's get back to our discussion of, uh, of Haydn and Beethoven. So could you could you kind of hear in that Haydn clip, it's, it's good music, but it feels like it could be in the background a little bit, or sure. you're, at, you're at like yeah, a party. Yeah, it's like a nice mood music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's. I don't want to do discredit to Haydn, but. Oh, lovely. It's not like a super deep yeah. piece, right? And yeah. This I is don't not... think it needs my full attention. Yeah. And I don't think that Haydn would be offended if I said that to him. Probably. Well, I don't would know. he be offended? Well, that's a tough call. Haydn was. Uh, that's a topic for another day. I'm not, I'm not so sure. He's a fantastic composer, and a lot of his pieces merit 
full attention, but you know, I have to think about that one. If he, okay. if he would, uh, he would be an excellent dinner guest, Haydn. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, regardless of whether we we like this music or not, or if it is super substantial or not, this was the type of music that was being written, and it didn't quite quite do it for for Beethoven. And I mentioned he he started off um, he started off kind of avoiding the standard genres that Mozart and Haydn dealt with, but he quickly delved into them and started writing symphonies and, and quartets of his own. And I, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I want to mention something very briefly before we listen to a, a, an actual Beethoven symphony, a, a clip, which is that it's also important to note that the the a composer's livelihood was changing a lot during the time of Beethoven. And Beethoven was actually the first real composer who was subsidized by by kind of wealthy individuals to write his own music. Mozart, to a certain extent, um, wrote the music that he wanted to. Um, he wrote some operas and pieces for for the royalty in Vienna, but he also bucked some of the trends. He wrote uh, an opera, Marriage of Figaro, one of the most famous operas, on what was considered a very risque plot at the time, this this, Beaumarch, this uh, Figaro. And, um, and that didn't earn him a lot of money and didn't earn him a lot of favor, and so Mozart was actually not a particularly wealthy or... He was struggling a lot of the time, mm. and that was partly because he was trying to write some music that he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Haydn, his entire life, was patronized. He wrote music for the court of Esterhazy. And mm-hmm. composers before him, Bach was a church organist. And so they were patronized to write music, again, for a purpose. Yeah. Beethoven, was his talent was recognized pretty early, as you'll you'll read in the Jan Swaffer sure. book. And, and uh, he was... Um, patronized by people who saw his talent and wanted him and to wanted write him stuff to do his thing. that he wanted to write. Wow, exactly. Cool. And so one of those pieces, one of the first pieces that he he wrote that where he was really trying to do his own thing when he really decided I'm going to actually take on these masters now and start changing the way we think about music was his first symphony. And so his first symphony is, is in C major and I want to, just like we did earlier, I want to play for you a Mozart symphony that was written just a few years before also in C major, Mozart's last symphony. And I want to play for you the beginning of that and the beginning of the Beethoven. Mm. So here's, here's the Mozart. So that's the beginning of the Mozart. Now let me play for you the beginning of sure. the of the Beethoven. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so that was the beginning of the Beethoven, and I want to I want to point out something very important about about this piece, and it's really interesting, and it's also, but it's also, it just goes to show what what Beethoven was trying to do. So, let me go over to our handy dandy piano here. So I mentioned both of these pieces in C major this time, and what that means is in the Mozart we hear at the very beginning we hear these notes. That's what we call in music a C major chord. And then we hear... But right at the beginning of the piece, first thing we hear, we want to establish, where are we starting? C major. So a standard thing, as I mentioned, these, these classical composers, it was a lot about rationality, formula. One thing we would do in music we establish where we're where our home base is, mm -hmm. and then from there we can depart from that. We can explore it, and we'll come back at the end, mm -hmm. and that's what makes a piece in C major. Now, what does Beethoven do? This tiny little maneuver, but very sub subversive maneuver, in fact, to just totally overthrow our idea of here's the formula and here's what we're going to expect in a symphony. The first chord that we hear in the Beethoven. Remember, we heard this in the Mozart. Here we hear. And this resolve to hear. This is not what we heard. This is not C major. Then we hear, then we hear something else. Again, this is not C major. We're exploring all these new keys that are not C major. Then we hear... This is still not C major. In fact, C major is here. And we've actually hit... We've hit, like, every key except for C major. We started with... A, key, a, a chord that's almost C major, but not quite, and it resolves somewhere totally different. And so just with this little stroke, you know, we, we get from Beethoven in the sense that, like, I'm going to break the, all these rules, mm. you know? I'm going to take the idea of let's start in C major and go somewhere else, and instead I'm going to say let's start everywhere but C major, and we'll find it at some point. Mm. Completely turning the idea of harmony at the beginning of a symphony on its head. He's like the first musical bad boy. Yeah, I, 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 a little bit. Yeah. Like, let me, let me break gonna, some of the rules. Yep. And who's a current musical bad boy or woman? Or, yeah. I was going to say, like, Danny Zuko from Greece. Like, that's... No idea who that is. No! <laughs> I have no idea who that is. No? What is Greece? It's a musical. You know uh, what I want? Nope. What? Got nothing. Everyone's been Sandy. It's Sandy... I don't know. I gotta think about this more. I'll will co come back to you. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Beethoven first musical bad boy, um, and so he was breaking the rules. And around this time, he, the most famous thing about Beethoven is that he went deaf eventually. That's what yeah. we all know about him. And around this time, he was starting to lose his hearing, and so he had to take a little break from composition. He moved to this. 
kind of resort-esque spa town outside of Vienna called Heiligenstadt. It's still there. It's it's a nice place to see. Now it's like kind of part of the larger Vienna area, but it, you can go see where Beethoven lived. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this very important document called the Heiligenstadt Testament where he talked about his deafness. He was realizing this. He was very depressed, you know, and he wrote this letter. But But he decided... I have to continue and I have to I have to continue because I have this kind of new path for music that I have to forge. Yeah. And so he came out of this this initial period of depression and, and you know being so upset with uh, as anyone would losing your hearing yeah. as a he great was composer. In his late 20s. How old was he? Yeah. 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 Late 20s and Gosh. um and so young. Yeah. It's I mean it's it's mind-boggling to think someone this prodigiously talented lost their hearing. Ugh. It's I, it shakes me every time I think about it. But you know, he 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 didn't hear a note of the Ninth Symphony mm-hmm. that he wrote, which is like the greatest piece ever composed, Ugh. maybe. Um, but but he came out of this with this new sense of I need to forge this new path for music, and so he entered probably his most famous period, which is his middle period or kind of heroic period. Some people call it the Heroica Symphony is a piece from there. And in this new period, he really, it was all about expanding the sense of what music can be, breaking all these rules, and really, again, writing music for for music's sake. Mm. Um, and around this time, it, it, there was another composer, a very famous composer, Giacchino Rossini in Italy, who was the other composer, even more so than Beethoven, who was taking Europe by storm. Mm -hmm. And Beethoven and Rossini really represented the two, like, they were complete antitheses of each other, and they represented the two polar opposites of what music could be. Rossini wrote operas primarily, and his entire life and goal was to churn out operas as quickly as he possibly could and to make crowd pleasers, basically. Mm. It's a little bit, I'm not, I don't want to diss the entire field, but it's a little bit like some pop music right now. Sure. Just churn out kind of mass entertainment as much as, as quickly sure. as we possibly can. Totally antithetical to Beethoven, who each piece from Beethoven was a curated, important event. Here's why I'm publishing this. I wanted to write this. Mm. And there's this legend of Rossini that he used to compose by a window, and occasionally a draft would come in and blow, you know, part of his score that he was writing off the table. And instead of writing a new, instead of going and picking it up and continuing, it was easier for him to just start a new overture and like, let me just start over and do a new one because it was just this formula, churn these out. And he had this very effective device. I want to play for you this, uh, something called a Rossini Crescendo. I'll play you two little clips okay. of Rossini Crescendos. And it was just a formula that he would use over and over again to build excitement at the end of an overture. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear it. It's very exciting. But they sound all pretty much the same. And it was just like you can expect this at the end of every Rossini overture. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's an example.
I'll play you one more just so that we can okay. get a good feeling for these. Sure. You hear those? Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of, it's it's like a formula almost. It's like it, they build and build and build. Yeah. Yeah. It's they, like dropping the bass in in 2019. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you you feel it and then you it take off. Builds up. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and he he knew this phenomenon 200 years ago. Hmm. So that was the other big phenom in the in the classical music world, and they couldn't be more different. And I think it's important to think about these just these two. What Beethoven was doing versus what else was going on. He was really forging this totally other path. A non-formulaic, a non-mass entertainment, a non-let's-sell-as-many-tickets-as-possible. And the idea that a score would blow away and you would just start a new one. He, It was the complete opposite. Mm. Every note is there for a purpose. And he's thought about it for a long time. And that's, you know, this is his work. Beethoven's opus, his his stamp of approval, Mm -hmm. his creative genius being put on the page. So I want us to... Every symphony that he wrote from this period is groundbreaking. The fourth, um, people often ignore, but the fourth has the longest minor introduction to a symphony that really had, like, ever really been composed to this point. And it's totally abnormal in the context of what ends up being such a major and somewhat classically informed symphony but he starts it with this huge minor introduction he's just like pushing the boundaries constantly yeah Yeah. just let's break a rule right there the fifth symphony as many of us have we've maybe heard this piece Mm. he decided let me take this little nugget Mm. and build an entire symphony off this nugget it's totally revolutionary concept. He also introduced this idea, a very romantic idea of what's called Sturm und Drang, which is struggle to triumph. The entire first movement of the fifth is intense, tumultuous. And the last movement is this apotheosis culmination of the entire symphony. So, And this is a common romantic narrative, struggle to triumph. Mm -hmm. A lot of romantic novels have that form. And Beethoven was maybe the, the pioneer of this of this form. I want to play a clip from the Sixth Symphony because, again, every single symphony from this era broke a lot of rules. But the Sixth really introduced an entire other style of composition, which is programmatic music. And I want to play for you. Let me play for you a little bit of the opening of the Sixth, and then we'll talk a little bit about this as well.
It's a nice piece, right? Yeah. It's very so. This is an interesting piece because this piece has titles. The the symphony is called the Pastoral Symphony, and usually symphonies don't have titles of the movements, like words that are. The idea is that there's supposed to be absolute music. We don't use words to describe this. They're kind of bigger than words. But the title of this first movement translates to something like Awakening of Pleasant Feelings Upon Arriving in the Countryside or something like that. And it's a huge, huge shift and entire field of composing that Beethoven introduced with this piece because there was music that we would call programmatic or had words to describe it before Beethoven. But that type of music, the Four Seasons by Vivaldi, mm-hmm. is an excellent example. You know, we know this... And we hear in that, for example, a bird. And the music says, there's there's words that say, bird comes into the scene, there's a brook, whatever. There, the music is really designed to paint an oral picture as Mm. vividly as possible. We want to write music that sounds as close to a bird as possible. Um, And so we're really trying to just evoke images, words, in music. Mm. This is a very different style of music, the the Sixth Symphony of Beethoven. It's meant to evoke a scene, Mm. but it's really meant to evoke one's kind of inner emotions, feelings, nostalgia, catharsis, anything that you experience when you... The title is Awakening of Pleasant Feelings Upon Arrival in the Countryside. So it's not really a picture. It's It's, a feeling. It's a feeling. It's an emotional landscape. And that's a monumental shift. It's really this... it's, It's kind of from an external view of what music can be to an internal view of what... And the idea that Beethoven kind of puts onto the page in music his feelings. Sure. And we can have some sort of resonance with those even 250 years later. That they kind of, some of what his feel, he was feeling when he goes to the countryside is similar to what we still feel. Sure. And that's a huge expansion of what music can be. It's this, this idea that music can actually be almost a better vehicle than words to describe these emotional landscapes like. or something. Yeah. yeah. And we get that sometimes in literature or something. I think of, like, one of my favorite writers is Steinbeck. And, you know, in a lot of Steinbeck writing, especially in, like, um, Grapes of Wrath and, and some of East of Eden, there's, like, entire chapters that are kind of descriptive, um, uh, meditations on... An American landscape or a, a feeling or like I, I think in Grapes of Wrath there's this entire chapter where it's about like kind of a some sort of like tumbleweed or something floating around on the road yeah and it really it's it's a kind of similar idea of like let me get the feeling of this let me capture this kind of somewhat American somewhat western dried out dust bowl Feeling, yeah, and it's it's a similar thing, and and I think the idea is that music can maybe even do this even better, is we can capture these, the emotions that we associate with something like that so vividly. That's so fascinating to me because I think like for, 
actors, a lot of what drives them when they're doing character work is they're so interested in what it feels like to be that individual. Yeah. So if I were to be portraying you in something, Jacob, I would be so interested in what it feels like to be you. Yeah. But Beethoven was so interested in what it what it feels like to musically. Yeah. I think it's akin to like the idea of method acting yeah. or like the Stanislavski method, yep. like where you try to become it's at its basis an internal motivation mm. rather than an external motivation. Yeah. And yeah, I've, in my limited knowledge of acting, I know that exists in the acting world. It's a world. technique that some people will do. There's in college, there's like lots of Pinterest boarding that you'll do, and you'll create scenes to make you feel more connected to the character. And then sometimes you'll even find pieces of music that help curate what you're trying to accomplish. Mm. What is Pinterest boarding? Oh, it, have you heard of Pinterest? I mean, it's like, like, vaguely. I don't really know what it is. You know Instagram, right? Yeah. So, like, you can sort of um, pin pictures and and curate them and put them all together on a board for, like, some uh, end goal. So a lot of people will do it for weddings, for example. So I'll Pinterest board a bunch. Of, I'm not getting married, but, like, anything that's, like, <laughs> wedding-related that, like, I like and want to keep for future reference. So, but I also do this, like, for recipes and all this other stuff. But um, a lot of, like, character work is done with... Interesting. Yeah. Maybe I should get into Pinterest. Sounds interesting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's too many things. Yeah, there's too many. Too many things. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's it's a massive... The Sixth Symphony especially is really important Mm. in in what it did because it it just shows another huge aesthetic shift that Beethoven was able to introduce. It's like the ultimate art for art's sake. Really. It kind of is. It kind of is. So then he wrote... um, There's incredible works from the middle period and and then he became increasingly more deaf and Mm. he entered this late period of his life where he kind of... As we see, and he kind of introduced the also the idea of his life has kind of mythicized the life of a tortured or recluse artist because mm-hmm. towards the end of his life, and we try to kind of superimpose a lot of other artists, composers' lives on the narrative that Beethoven's life took because he's such a mythological figure and he's sure. viewed as like the pure artist. But he retreated into this kind of lonely, reclusive, meditative, eccentric, esoteric style in his late life. And he started writing pieces that really are kind of formless. They're very perplexing. They're very hard to know what's going on, but it's kind of, it's an incredibly interesting exploration into kind of someone completely deaf, Mm. dying, there's less of a sense of I need to make my mark on anything anymore. I've already done that. But his late period is very, it's like a hermit who's who's just been with their their work for so long and they're writing kind of esoteric, weird um, pieces. But they're, they're fascinating. I want to play for you just a little bit of one. And a lot of his pieces from this time, they, they, they're very slow, very kind of pensive. So here's here's one of his most famous string quartets, movement from a string quartet from this late period.
It's weird, right? It's, it's like interesting. Haunting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's haunting. It's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's but it's like music distilled to kind of its most basic elements and just it's fascinating actually. The late string quartets of Beethoven have have Bizarre. fascinated yeah. people and and perplexed people for for years and years because mm-hmm. they're such weird but also beautiful, also interesting works. And so he kind of it sounded almost modern for a moment. Yeah, it, there's, there's this woman named Zoe Keating. I, she, uh-huh. I think that's what her name is. She's a cellist. We actually used her for a, like character study music in a play uh-huh. that I was in in college, and it reminded this reminded me so much of uh-huh. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it is a little modern in a way. Like it it just it's it's kind of timeless. It yeah. breaks a lot of rules and um, and it's fascinating music. So. That's the other thing about Beethoven that's so remarkable is that he was one of the first composers, maybe the first composer, when you really think about it in detail, mm. whose body of work spanned such massive stylistic difference. Yeah. And that set the tone for a lot of composers to come after him. Not all, but composers like Stravinsky sure. um, and Prokofiev uh, and, to a certain extent, um, Sibelius, Mahler, mm. a lot of these composers, Strauss, Strauss especially, Strauss is an excellent example of a composer who just, from the, their youth to their middle life to their late life, totally different music. Mm. Wrote totally, Stravinsky is another excellent example. Stravinsky wrote these dazzlingly multicolored ballets, Rite of Spring, Petrushka, mm. beginning of his life. And then he completely shifted to this neoclassical style. And then he actually wrote some kind of 12-tone music at the end of his life, which is, again, a totally different style. And, yeah, Beethoven was the first composer also to do this, to have stylistic periods that were totally different. And we see this in the world of art, too. Yeah. A lot of, you know, Picasso was this way. And um, and so just to, to wrap things up, I think that's... Hopefully it's, it's an illustration of what we talked about at at the very outset, which is that Beethoven, he was a fantastic composer. He did so much. He really ushered in a new era of music romanticism. Mm. He was the first kind of autonomous composer in a way. He was the first composer to have an enormous amount of stylistic breadth and, and variety. But most importantly, that's the thing about him, is he did so much that it's, it's, it's staggering and it's hard to reduce it to a single thing. But But... I think the single thing that's why we should care about Beethoven, why he's so important, mm-hmm. and why like he's worth listening to 250 years after he was born is this idea that he really wrote music for music's sake, yeah. and he changed the entire tra- trajectory of music and the and and all of the arts, mm-hmm. what the arts could be. Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty big deal, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's it's that's such an interesting thing for me to think about as. As if, like, what if he hadn't gone deaf? What if he had not died when he yeah. died? Like, what else could he have done? That's for... that's a very interesting question. I mean, you know, Beethoven actually lived for that time a passable amount. He was 56, 57. Sure. Um, and it is interesting to think, what if he hadn't gone deaf? But I actually... Or did he push himself because he was so limited by his deafness that That's... he was, like, in spite of this? Because I think a lot of what he did when he was younger and when he had more hearing, he was already, you know, 
being like the bad boy, as we said. Yeah. So I think maybe this could have even fueled him even more. It's possible. I think we wouldn't have the late style without his deafness. Yeah. I think that's a direct result of his deafness. But I also wonder, this is just a, a theory, but I wonder if it would have made that much of a difference. Because sure. I'm sh- he had such a finely tuned compositional ear. It's clear from the stuff that he wrote later, I don't think he needed to hear it. It was all so vivid in his head. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think he needed his hearing. That's yeah, it's it's so prodigious. But that is always an interesting thing to think about. I I think the composer actually, for me, that I think about that a lot more is Mozart because Mozart died when he was you know thirty three or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and for Mozart, he was hinting at really a lot of interesting progress towards Mm -hmm. the end of his life. A piece like The Magic Flute, um, there's about 20 different musical styles in The Magic Flute. Sure. There's this Wagnerian recitative, basically, Mm -hmm. in the Sprecher scene. There's a lot of this... um, Yeah. I mean, he, he... And that one, to me, is very interesting. What if he had lived... 30 Another more 30 years. years. I mean, he would have written maybe twice as much music. He probably would have slowed down because... He would have met Beethoven, probably. He would have what, met Beethoven. What they would have done with each other. Yeah. And those are always interesting things to think yeah. about, but it's also, you know, it's it's the same with any any writer, any artist. Do you think Beethoven and Mozart would have gotten along? Because didn't he not get along with... Beethoven didn't get, a, get along with Haydn. Yeah. Right? And I they think, like only studied for a year together. Yeah, they 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 didn't study for long, and yeah, he didn't super get along with Haydn. You know, this is this. I think again, I'm, I'm speculating, but I think it's a probably not super well because yeah. I think one one element of genius at that level is that, and you see it from both of them in their actual in their writings yeah. and their stuff. You don't re- you think that like nobody else really gets it, and you kind of. Um, you have you have to I think have this sense that like what you're doing is better but also sure. what you're doing is kind of the only way sure and so I wonder if they would have gotten along but my guess is probably not and they actually operated in slightly different spheres mm. Beethoven was never a good vocal composer and Mozart primarily was operatic sure. in his scope and so I wonder. I also, I don't know if either of them, maybe Beethoven a little more than Mozart, but I don't know if either of them were the types to really sit down, unlike a composer like Schumann, for example, or uh, Schoenberg, Stravinsky, some of these later composers. I don't know that Beethoven and Mozart were ones to sit down and really say, like, this is my aesthetic philosophy, this is the direction. I don't think they would have butt heads that way. yeah. But I think they probably were both somewhat egotistical and yeah. They were probably less collaborative workers. Like oh, they yeah. set out on their own. And, for sure. Yeah. I think non-collaborative yep. workers for yep. the most part. Well, look at what we've received because of that. It's, yeah. 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 Um, interesting stuff. Yeah. With that, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it. But I it would encourage you in twenty twenty. Um, because it's the year of Beethoven to go out and listen to some Beethoven, maybe yeah. some late stuff. Go um, catch a concert. Go yeah. enjoy some Beethoven and celebrate and the genius. Almost yeah. certainly, um, wherever you're living, 
some performing arts organization will be honoring Beethoven this year, so there will be plenty of live concert opportunities to, to check out his, his work. Absolutely. Go enjoy. All right. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll see you soon. For more information about this podcast, you can find us at attentiontodetailpod.com, where you'll find a list of techniques presented in these episodes and a two-week program for starting your own listening practice. You can also find us on all of your favorite social media channels. We encourage you to follow us, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you enjoy the show, please give us a rating. We hope to see you soon at a concert.